0: Hello. So good to see everyone. I'm Lynn Kitchens on the teaching team. Excited to be with all of you. Excited to keep moving forward in the book of Revelation. And I've been learning a lot. I hope you have been too. It's been exciting. Okay, so I was thinking that probably everyone here and at all the other campuses could say they've been to Six Flags in Arlington. Okay, so I moved here to Texas, gosh, 40 years ago about, and I thought I'd like to ride scary rides because of the few little carnivals I went to in my hometown. (laughs) Then I went to Six Flags. And so my sister was visiting from out of town, Dawn, and we thought, we saw, I don't even know if this ride's here anymore, that one where you just sit in this chair and it just takes you straight up, like almost to the moon and then it just drops you, free fall. Well, we didn't know the dropping part. We thought it took you up, and it took you down. And so we got on that, and we're going up that ride and pointing out things and looking around, thinking, scary, oh, this is so scary. You know, then it dropped us from the moon to the earth, and we just grabbed each other like little kids and just screamed in each other's faces all the way down to the bottom. So then I thought I'd try a roller coaster there. And I screamed from the minute it left till the minute it came back and I decided I don't like scary rides. The scariest ride for me is the runaway mine train. That is my ride. Okay, so we're going on a little bit of a scary ride in this study and in the studies in the future. So we're gonna buckle up Be ready for this ride, because God is always there in the midst of it, and we can trust him just like we just sang. We started the study with John just falling at the feet of Christ. John was told to write everything that Jesus would reveal to him. And in the first three chapters, it was about the present. Remember the churches, that Jesus actually sent letters to churches, an amazing thing. That was happening right then. But last week, a door was opened into the future. And just glance at chapter four again, verse one. Here's how we know this is a new thing happening here. Chapter four, verse one, these words, after this. John says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After this, the future, and John is whisked away. We studied last week, whisked away to heaven to see what those things are. He finds himself surrounded by groups of people worshiping God, the 24 elders, which we believe are the redeemed in the church, and the four living creatures, which we think are special angels, the cherubim. And God is holding a scroll in his right hand, And John is weeping because no one is worthy to open that scroll until they say, Jesus is. Jesus is worthy to open this scroll, which is the title deed of the universe that God holds in his hands. And Jesus is worthy. He was slain. He's the lamb. He can open it. And it has seven seals that Jesus will open. As he breaks these seven seals open... You saw in your homework, each seal unleashes a new demonstration of God's judgment in the future tribulation period. So today we're going to look at six of those seals. This tribulation period was necessary because it was preparing God's kingdom on earth. It would involve and will involve a period of unparalleled judgment. Seven years of the greatest disasters the world has ever known, building up to the coming of Jesus Christ. This will be the time when God will conquer the evil in our world, when he will forever end sin and death. And as we look at these severe judgments today, the good news is we will always see that God is in control, and God never changes, and God loves us, But these judgments must come to the world. You're going to notice that from here on out, the church is never mentioned. In the present, the church was mentioned. Now we're going into the future. The church is not mentioned anymore. And that's because the tribulation is coming. And we believe the church has been lifted up to be with her Savior. We call this the rapture and they will meet Christ in the air, both Christians that are alive before the tribulation and those that are dead. That means those who are awake and those who are asleep. Look what 1 Thessalonians 5 says. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Oh, I'm sorry, go up. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake, living at that time, or asleep, we've already died, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. So I love that phrase, God has not destined the church for wrath. And here's something I also hold on to. Think about past judgments where God had to come to the earth with strong judgments against wickedness and against rebellion. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by sulfur and fire, the flood that God sent to cover the earth during the time of Noah because of the wickedness, the plagues that overwhelmed Egypt, the judgment of God there, the destruction of Jericho as Israel was entering the promised land. So you've got those judgments in mind. Think about this. Each time, if there was anyone there who had faith in him, he removed them before he brought that judgment into that particular place. He removed Lot and his family out of the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. He removed Noah and his family from the flood. He removed Israel from the Egyptian plagues. They were not touched by those. He removed Rahab the harlot from Jericho because she believed in Israel's God. So like Paul said, we can encourage one another with these words. Meanwhile, you're going to see at the opening of each seal, we realize horrific catastrophes are happening to the earth. I think it's, it's really impossible for us to imagine what that would be like imagine the depth of them each seal has a pattern we saw christ breaks the seal one of the four living creatures the cherubim say come and a colored horse and a rider leap onto the scene and these have been called the four horsemen of the apocalypse and each horseman doesn't represent a specific individual, but a specific force, although we are going to see, especially in the weeks ahead, that these forces are, are committing actions that were prophesied about the coming Antichrist, and we see that in these. So let's look at the first seal, Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is the first seal, a white horse with a rider coming to conquer and right next to that seal on your outline, false peace. This horse and this rider represent a time of great world peace, but it's false. It's not going to last for a very long time at all. How do we know that? First, we know this is about peace because the horse is white. This is a symbol of victory. If you were a victorious Roman soldier, you came riding into the city on a white horse. There's no bloody battle here. This is just victory for the rider of this horse. The rider wears a victor's crown given to him by the people because they want security, they want stability, they want peace. So they lift him up. They give him a victor's crown. And he has a bow but no arrow, meaning he conquers without warfare. Instead, he conquers with these false promises. And Jesus warned. The disciples that many false messiahs would come and lead many astray. And they really would culminate in the arrival of the greatest liar of all, the Antichrist. Look at what they say about him in the book of Daniel. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries and paul even warned the church that this peace promised during this time would not be a lasting peace let's look at this next 1st Thessalonians verse you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security Then sudden destruction destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The Antichrist will become a conquering king elected by the inhabitants of the earth. Let's look at the second seal, verse three. This is a red horse with a rider destroying peace. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So on your outline, write the word war next to this red horse destroying peace. Okay, a red horse symbolized the blood and the terror of war. In this case, it's going to be a worldwide war. Instead of carrying a bow with no arrows, this dreadful slayer carries a sword, not the kind of sword that brings order and justice like the sword we've studied about coming from the mouth of Christ. This translation sword means dagger of assassination. It means slaughter. It means massacre. This force gets rid of the peace that was short lived, and people begin to destroy each other in battles. This is the time of wars and rumors of wars that Jesus explained to his disciples. Look at Matthew 24. He said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. We also know later, when you think about the red horse, that in Revelation later they call the Antichrist the red dragon, they call him the scarlet beast. So we can see his fingerprints all over the slaughter and killing and war that is taking place in the world. Okay, the third seal is a black horse with a rider rationing food. Let's look at that in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine." You can write the word famine next to this seal. This black horse gallops on the scene. He represents famine. He represents poverty and Isn't this the result of what would happen with a million wars going on in the world? That's what this is. And so because of that, the rider carries this pair of scales in his hands. This would have been a common measuring weighing system that they had back then. He's doing that because he has such a lack of food. He's rationing out and weighing out how much food he can have to keep living. A denarius was a normal... A day's wage pay back then would be about 15 cents today. And during the time of the tribulation, here's what 15 cents will buy. That's what the voice is crying out. A quart of wheat. Okay, that's enough for about one good meal for one person. So if you had a family at home, you were in trouble. But you could buy three quarts of barley And barley was mostly used to feed animals, but uh, they became so desperate that they would use that to try to feed the people in their family, low in nutrition, but it was cheaper so they could get some more of it. You wouldn't really have enough for the necessities of wine and oil. You know, they used oil to make breads and cakes and whatever kind of meals they had. They always had something that used that. They used wine to purify the water and for cooking as well. So this voice cries out, hey, don't harm the wine and the oil. Ration it. Be careful with it. Protect it. Guard it because this is a time of famine. This is a time of great need. Famine would be a major cause of death during the tribulation. Okay, a fourth seal, a pale horse with the rider named Death. Let's look at verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth." Okay, next to this seal, write the word aftermath. Death and Hades are the aftermath of all the terror and destructions the last three horsemen have brought about. When you have war and killings and conflict, when you have famine and poverty, death and deception, death and Hades will come. John is witnessing the grim reaper and the grave digger. Moving across the face of the earth, their names, Death and Hades. Death slays the body, Hades swallows up the soul. Hades and hell swallows up the soul. A quarter of the world dies by war, famine, pestilence, and a scary one, wild beasts. Today, that would come to two billion people. Dying because of this. You know, we had someone just a couple weeks ago in our home. And they were telling us about their friend who was almost killed by a giraffe. And so they were on some safari looking at some giraffes in a distance. But a male giraffe came from nowhere. I don't know how. Ran along, put his nose under the man, threw him up into the air. And when he landed, he began stomping on him, trying to kill him. Now, the good ending of the story is somehow they distracted him and they got this man away. And later his wife said, I'm glad he didn't die because when people would ask me later how my husband died, (laughs) I would hate to say a giraffe killed him. (laughs) Scary. (laughs) Things like that are going to happen during the tribulation." Beasts killing people. You know why? They don't have homes anymore. They can't find safe places to hide. No wonder the horse in this seal is pale or ashen. That actually word pale means yellowish green, which is a sickly color of death. It's the color of a body that's decomposing. That's what's happening here. Every tragedy the world have ever seen will not come close to these judgments on the earth. And as I was working on this, I don't know about you, but I needed an intermission. (laughs) So we're taking an intermission. What kind of God do we serve? When we think of those things, we just stop, we have to stop and remember and recall who he really is. Is he cruel? Is he without compassion? Let's remember these things. God allows evil in the world, but he is not the author of evil. Look at Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Those who turn their backs on God, those are the ones who bring evil into the world. In the case of the Great Tribulation, God allows evil agents to be used so he can judge evil. Did you notice that we see God in control throughout these seals? The riders are permitted. They're given authority. So we remember God is sovereign, but he is not blameworthy because he is righteous in all of his deeds. And because he is righteous, wickedness must be judged. Look at Psalm 9. You read this in your homework, but I loved it. But the Lord sits enthroned forever He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Don't you love the end of that verse? We can even remember that during the tribulation. He will not forsake those who seek him, everyone, everyone on earth who puts their trust in God at any time will find out he's my stronghold. He will never leave me. If that weren't true, there'd be no hope for us and no hope for anybody living in the middle of the tribulation. But we're going to see God's promise stands true even at that time. And then I want us to remember God is constantly tempering his wrath and he demonstrates mercy. Jesus teaches us that's going to be true even during the tribulation. Look at Mark 13 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days in the tribulation, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, He shortened the days. If it wasn't for God's merciful intervention, the entire world would have physically died. God cuts short the tribulation to benefit those who are his own and those who have come to believe in him. And the truth is, if it weren't for the mercy of God today that restrains the amount of evil, we would have to wake up every morning facing the awful wickedness and evilness of man in full power if God wasn't already doing this to man's wickedness. Chuck Swindoll says this, the fact that God allows future judgments to take place tells us that in the present time, he's actively holding back the wickedness of humanity. When the dam of his gracious restraint is broken, disaster pours forth like a flood. All of these truths about God are the perfect backdrop for the next seal, the souls of those slain for their witness. Look at verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Next to this seal, we write the word martyrs. So John's having another revelation of heaven here. Under the altar, John sees the souls of those who did die during the tribulation because of their faith in God. And there will be many who do that during the tribulation. They are going to face the greatest persecution that's ever been done in this whole world. And they are going to suffer at the hands of the Antichrist. The fact that they are symbolically under the altar probably refers to the altar of incense in the tabernacle. They would burn the incense, and those, the incense rising was supposed to symbolize the prayers of the saints going up. That's what these martyred people, these souls right now, are saying to God. They are lifting their pleas up to God. Since the church was rescued before the tribulation and the rapture, they will already have their glorified bodies in heaven. But those who place their faith in God during the tribulation will not have their glorified bodies. And so they're asking God, how long will it be? How long until we do? When will you judge and avenge us? They're waiting for their glorified bodies to be resurrected. And this kind of prayer that they are taking to God looking for his justice was really found all throughout the whole Psalms, a lot. I wrote down Psalm 94, just a part of it, where they say, O Lord, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. How long will the wicked exalt? These martyrs know God is going to keep his promises. They just wonder when. He lets them know, more are coming more are coming and so wait wait until these other martyrs come and join you they will come to me in death before the time of my final vengeance and then I love it God gives them robes to wear white robes so think about that if a soul is just floating around in space can you put a white robe on them We will have temporary bodies. The people that come to Christ later, they will have temporary bodies until Christ's return and that resurrection, their bodies will be resurrected. And so he kindly gives them those. They wear this white robe of redemption. It illustrates that now they are holy and pure because of Jesus Christ. And so they can rest in God's perfect timing as this tribulation goes on. Let's look at the sixth seal, the judgment of God displayed on the earth, Revelation six twelve. When Jesus opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So, we're going to write the word destruction next to this seal. The most terrifying judgment yet during the Great Tribulation. This is the prophesied day of the Lord that you and I have read a lot about in prophecies. The sixth seal begins the day of the Lord. It's the powerful fury of God. It's the upheaval of heaven and earth. Jesus is coming soon. This is no ordinary earthquake that's coming to the earth. All the earth's faults will fracture at the same time, bringing a cataclysmic global earthquake. So strong and powerful that that the debris and the ash that comes up from it will cover the sun, turning it black, cover the moon, turning it red. Stars will fall from the sky. This word stars means any kind of celestial body, any shape, any size. A little scarier to think about it that way. Meteor showers, unexpected, wherever, things falling from the sky. The Earth's atmosphere will be dramatically changed, and so the sky, as we know it, will disappear. And because of the stress of the earthquakes, the Earth's plates will be shifting and slipping and realigning entire continents. Can you imagine the sights? You say, hey, I know a safe place. Let's go over there. And you get there, and it's gone. Hey, well, let's get to Hawaii. Let's go on that island. It's gone. It's moved. It's sunk. Can you imagine the smells? Can you imagine the sounds? And can you imagine the terror and the loss of the people you love, the people you know? God doesn't use any evil agents to accomplish this judgment. It is his full fury against sin poured out on the earth. The prophet Joel announced this destruction, but I love his prophecy, but he also lets us remember it's never too late to choose truth, to choose God. Look at Joel on your verse sheet. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, Who can endure it, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Will those on the earth these final days, Cry out to God. Let's see what it says in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come And who can stand? John records this awful scene that he sees. The complete panic of the entire population of the world. Every single person. Rich or poor. Well known or unknown. Strong or weak. Will try to hide in the cracks and crevices of the earth. Even so the earth's inhabitants will recognize the source of their great distress because looking around them, they can't deny that this is the hand of God. And as they find themselves cowering together in caves in the dark, we can almost hear them whispering to each other, this is God. This is the wrath. This is the lamb. This is God on his throne." And their horror and their terror in that. They would rather, though, instead of calling out to God, they call on the earth to hide them. Instead of dropping their pride and bowing down, they would rather run away from God than into his merciful arms. Instead of bowing before him, they are going to bury themselves in the dark. You know, years ago, there was a woman that would come around church now and then who had made some sad and awful choices in her life. And sometimes the church could help her out. And some particular women in the church spent a lot of time with her. And she was a sweet person. And I can say that she is better now, so that's good. But I had her in my car once, and she was showing me under the bridge, this is where I live. She was living homeless under the bridge. Now, I knew other options that she had. I knew she didn't have to live under the bridge, so I kind of was trying to talk her out of it. And I said, you know, why would you choose that over other places? And I'll never forget what she said. I don't want to have anyone telling me what I have to do every day. I thought, interesting. That's kind of the attitude that these people have had their whole lives. I don't want a God telling me what my life should be like. I want to do it my way. It's a dark way. People don't always know that. In the face of demise and destruction, the people look around at each other and say, Who can stand? Who can live through this? Who can endure this? Because we're standing before God and the Lamb on this great day of their wrath. Fortunately, that question that they ask, who can stand, is answered. And it's some good news. Look at chapter seven, verse one. John says, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, two distinct groups will be saved during God's divine judgment here. We see this one, the first group, 144,000 redeemed Jewish evangelists on the earth. It's so great. We can hear the hoofbeats of the four horsemen echoing in the distance as the earth's upheaval is stilled. And John's attention is turned to Israel, a people chosen by God, chosen to know the one true God, chosen to worship the one true God, chosen to be a light to the nation who was worshiping every false god there could be. But they disobeyed and they attached themselves to these other pagan gods. And so they became a nation that was constantly conquered and then delivered and then devastated and then exiled and then restored again and again. And in this chapter, we see God redeeming them for good. 144,000 of them. He promised he would do that before Christ's return, and he never stopped watching over Israel. Uh, I think I mentioned this one time before that in my public middle school, we learned a song, He watches over Israel, He slumbers not nor sleeps. Why my music teacher picked that song, it was the hardest song I've ever sung. (laughs) in in the world and she took us to a pta group one night and we stood on stage and she was down in the middle of the room leading us in the song and it was so hard we all forgot the words in the dead center of it and so she was like figured that out so she turned to the audience and started singing the solo by herself (laughs) it was pretty sad we all just stood and watched her You know what, though? I'm so glad she taught us that heart song. I always remembered, he's always watching Israel. Just from that Bible verse song that we sang, he's always watching them. He's always held Israel in his heart from the time he called called them. And they're going to become evangelists for God during the tribulation. It's so great. So the reference to the four winds being held back means judgment on the earth is being held back at this time in every direction until the Jews were sealed. 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapter 14, we're going to find out that the seal on their forehead is the name of God and the Lamb, symbolically somehow. And having that seal, God's going to use in their lives to protect them from a lot of the destruction that's going on around them so they can go out and be the light to the nations that they were supposed to be so long ago. Zechariah prophesied about this moment of Israel's redemption. I'm going to read it to you. You might write this reference down. I didn't get it on the verse sheet. It's Zechariah 12.10. It's a beautiful verse about this moment. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. As one weeps for a firstborn, the Jews will now understand he was our Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And they are going to just pick up their robe and take off to tell every Jew and Gentile that they run into. And that becomes the second group that will be redeemed during the tribulation. A multitude from every nation, tribe, peoples and languages these will be the martyred converts of the jewish evangelists let's look at verse 9 after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So before God and the Lamb is this salvation celebration. These people that have heard about the truth about God, worshiping around him, wearing the white robes, the ones we just read about in the fifth seal, they're wearing those, These are robes that say that they are triumphant. They are victorious because they know who God is now. They're waving palm branches, which also means a righteous triumph. And as they give praises to God, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they all join in, and then all at once, out of the blue, one of the elders turns to John and says, Who are these people? Where would they come from? And John wisely says, sir, I don't know. (laughs) Who wants to give a wrong answer at that point? (laughs) What we can realize by that question is that that elder refers to the martyrs as a people group that's different than the church group. Who are these people? And then the elder answers his questions. They are the ones... Coming out of the great tribulation. Washed in the blood of the lamb. They will suffer no more persecution. But joyfully serve their God. They will suffer no more homelessness. They will find shelter in the presence of God. They will find no more thirst but be guided to springs of living water by Jesus their shepherd. They will suffer no more tears of anguish because God will wipe their tears away. Now they wear these white robes of salvation. They are victors at the throne of their Savior. The Jews and the martyrs answer the question, who can stand? The answer, anyone who comes to God through his son and the work he did for them on the cross. But we know God asks us, the church, a question today as well. Who will go? Who will go and be a light for those that are lost in the darkness? Look at Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's about us. Let's tell our spiritual story to those that don't have one. Like the Jewish evangelists did. It takes courage and it takes compassion. And we have to remember it's not always effective to approach someone and say, you know, you need to repent Ask God to forgive your sins or you'll be going to hell. This doesn't really go over very well. But when you tell your story, no one can really debate your story. And you get to weave the gospel throughout your story. And you're not being accusatory to the person you're talking to. And they aren't going to get so defensive when you tell your story. And let me say this, this is another great thing to do. You can write letters to the people that you want them to know your story if it's too hard to do it face-to-face or if they don't live around you. In fact, I did it with a couple relatives this Christmas because my wonderful evangelical daughter said, you need to tell them about the God. I never see these two people, but I wrote them a letter. The other great thing about a letter is they can refer to it later. They can think, what what was that Bible verse they put in there? And read it and let the Spirit of God begin to work on them. Tell the story to those who don't have a story. And if you're like me, sometimes you look around and think, everyone I'm around has a spiritual story. Hey, you just ask God to bring you people without a story, he will do it. We can be the evangelists. Secondly, recognize the distressed and point them to the source of true healing. These are people it's not hard to find. People are fearful. People are overwhelmed. People are sad. People are mad. These were the same kind of people the Jews were approaching during the tribulation. Those people had figured out God is our source of our problems. What they hadn't figured out was he was also the solution to their problems. Most people today don't know that either, unless someone tells them. And it's so much easier, isn't it, just to be kind and listen to someone's problems and think, I was really nice to them, and I I listened, and I nodded, and I really care about them, and I love them, but that's only one step in sharing the gospel. In our hearts lives the only person who can change their life. Why would we not tell everyone about him? So their life is changed. Why would we keep him a secret? Why would we let them stay in a dark place? One day their suffering could end. One day they could dance around God's throne, triumphant and joyful. And one day we could be dancing with him. One day their suffering could end. And finally, bring the hurting out of their hiding places and answer the hard questions. I think about what the Jews had to do to share the gospel. I mean, they literally were going through dark places, pushing away boulders, rocks, sticking their head into crevices and caves, looking (laughs) for people that were hiding from God. And you and I know some people like that people who are trapped in their sins and they don't even know it. They're in the dark. And as we spend some time, we should try to pull them out of these personal caves and crevices. But we have to be prepared. We have to be willing. We have to be patient to also answer their hard questions. But here's the truth. Most lost people don't want us to define dispensationalism. They don't. They just want us to be able to explain the hope that's in our heart. That's what we get to do. And remember in Matthew 10, Jesus said, when you approach someone with the gospel and they're cynical, hard people, don't worry. My spirit is with you. I'll help you to know what to say. So who will go? Let it be us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We can't even believe your magnificent plan to bring as many people to your side as you can. May we be your servants and work with you on that. Show us the people around us we can be bold and courageous with in compassion. We love you, Lord. We love you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.